What is up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Plenty podcast, the show to get you closer to your food source and learn the skills so that every year can be a year of plenty for you. As always, I'm your host, Poli Reeland, and this episode of the Year of Plenty podcast is a conversation with Clay Bowers, a passionate forager from northern Michigan. Clay has been foraging for almost two decades, and he is well-respected in the wild food community. He is on a lifelong journey of learning and exploring all the amazing and delicious food found in nature around us, and he has a ton of valuable insights, and it's tough to really find someone with as much foraging experience as him, so it was awesome to get to sit down with him and engage in some really meaningful conversation. What I like about him the most is that he offers a very fresh perspective on our connection with nature and the abundant food sources it provides, and he also doesn't shy away from challenging conventional wisdom. Before I get into the episode overview, I just want to make you guys aware of a few things. First of all, we have a segment in this episode on foraging gear, and I recently created a foraging gear list with all the tools that I think are needed for you to get the most out of your foraging adventures. You can check that out on my blog at www.theyearofplenty.com blog. I will also have a link to that gear list in the episode description. Also, the awesome people at Montana Block are now sponsors of the podcast. I'm so happy that they decided to partner with us here. And the best part is that they're providing a 15% discount code exclusively to Year of Plenty podcast listeners with the code Year of Plenty. Have you ever wanted a kitchen tool that not only looks stunning, but can also last a lifetime? Well, let me introduce you to Montana Block, a small family-owned business that creates exceptional wooden kitchen products. I'm talking about functional, high-quality, and unique end-grain butcher blocks and more. What sets Montana Block apart from others? Well, they pour their heart and soul into every single product. Each piece is meticulously crafted by hand using all American-made materials. How cool is that? And these aren't just ordinary cutting boards. They're kitchen masterpieces designed to withstand the test of time. Now listen closely because this offer is really too good to resist. Montana Block is graciously granting you guys a fantastic 15% discount on their entire collection. Just use the code Year of Plenty at checkout on your website, which is www.mtblock.com, and treat yourself with a quality cutting board or one of their awesome wooden magnetic knife holders. If you take advantage of this offer, some of the money will kick back to the Year of Plenty podcast, so this is a great way for you to help support the show. And one more thing, Montana Block is committed to your satisfaction. If you ever need a repair, they're there to lend a helping hand, ensuring your beloved cutting board stays by your side throughout your entire culinary journey. And, you know, if you take good care of it, you can even pass it on to your kids or a friend or another family member. So why settle for mass-produced, potentially toxic, mediocre cutting boards when you can embrace the artisanal brilliance of Montana Block? Head on over to www.emptyblock.com today and remember to use the code Year of Plenty to claim your exclusive 15% off. I also want to let you know that I created an ebook with some of my favorite food preservation recipes in it, everything from making pickled turmeric eggs to fermented milk kefir. And I'm giving away this ebook for free to anyone who leaves a review for the podcast on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
All you have to do is review the show and send me a screenshot of the review to my Instagram account, which is at Poldy Wheeland, or you can also email it to me to my email, which is theyearofplenty at gmail.com. Once I receive the screenshot of the review, I will send you a link to download this ebook. Okay, now for a quick episode overview so you know what to expect from this episode. First, we kind of start out by talking about Clay's journey into foraging. Then we get into his process for researching and familiarizing himself with a new wild edible species. After that, we talk about valuable resources and references that have been particularly helpful in Clay's foraging journey up to this point. Then my favorite part and the beef of this episode, we do a deep dive into an awesome plant, which is milkweed, which can be found basically all around the U.S., we talk about, you know, its characteristics, the ecological significance, the historical uses, and the various types of milkweed found in the wild. We also discuss concerns of toxicity and bitterness of milkweed and some of the myths surrounding that. Then we get into essential identification factors and potential lookalikes of milkweed, along with the ideal habitats to find this plant. Clay also provides insights into the different parts of milkweed that can be harvested throughout the season, as well as his favorite ways to prepare it in the kitchen. So yeah, this whole episode is really, uh, you know, comprehensive overview of this awesome plant that I still have to learn a lot about, and Clay has really mastered. And I think a lot of you could get a ton of value from learning about milkweed, and you know, maybe even lower your grocery bill throughout the seasons. After we cover milkweed, we have a short segment on ramps, the wild leek, which is another fascinating wild edible. And here we talk about some of Clay's somewhat controversial thoughts on sustainable ramp harvesting. So that's definitely worth checking out. And then finally, we end on a discussion about the tools we use for successful foraging trips and foraging best practices Clay has accumulated over the years. All right, that's it. Let's get straight into this episode with Clay Bowers. So, Clay Bowers, welcome to the show, man. How's it going? Pretty good, man. How about yourself? Great, great. It's a beautiful day here in Montana right now. Although, I guess we did have a tornado warning somewhere close by, which is very un- like strange for this area. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. When you say very nice, what temperature? Oh, man, I didn't even look at the temperature today. I'd say probably like 70s. Okay, well, we were almost 90. Oh, Jesus. That's pretty hot. Yeah, Yeah. it's going to get here like that, but it's been so freaking rainy. Like, I'm not complaining. I kind of love the rain, and I think this area needs it, especially for the plants and mushrooms and whatnot, because it's generally, you know, drier here where I'm at. Um, I'm in southwest Montana, so it's not quite eastern Montana where it's basically desert, but it's still a lot drier. And, uh, so I'm welcoming the the spring showers, quote unquote, in the middle of June, but um, yeah, I don't know how much of a summer we'll have, to be honest. Maybe like a month, a month or two. It's a it's been a challenge for me, um, foraging wise, just because of the elevation and very different temperatures from or climates from back like in Wisconsin, and the elevation's been making it really tough for me to get a consistent like reading on what's in season when, because, you know, it might be, I mean, you get that where you're at in Michigan too and Wisconsin, but here it's a much more extreme where like I have one spot to go for a certain species and another spot, but they just start, you know, at so, such different times of the year because of the elevation change and whatnot. Wow. Yeah. So 
let's uh let's do a little intro for you so the the listeners know who you are um because you're you know from what i know about you you've i mean we've been like followers following each other on instagram for a while and i've been following your content for a while and um from what i know you've been in the in the foraging game for for quite a while before it was cool right like 19 years or something now um well like 17 17 uh, yeah it's, it's close enough so how, yeah. how how did you get into foraging and like what inspired you to pursue it you know so for so long really <laughs> i used to be so i'm i'm 40 years old and uh i used to be like really into um punk rock and all that <laughs> stuff when i was when i was in my young 20s and um i started getting into dumpster diving because that was really popular back then <laughs> really and and then i was like you know just taking free food from from dumpsters that grocery stores had thrown away and i kind of thought um started getting interested in like prepper scenarios and i, and I was like well there's not going to be any dumpsters there's not going to be any um like place for me to buy food so i should just learn how to eat from the land and i got into it that way and then it's progressed into this thing that I actually just really love and enjoy. And it's not like a prepper thing for me anymore. It's just something that's a part of my life. That's interesting. Yeah, because I I came to it more like from like just focusing on eating healthy and working out and then like getting into hunting, fishing, and then eventually into foraging. I used to do it with my mom when I was really small. We'd go after uh, Berlauch, which is the ramp in German. It's the European version. And uh, like some, uh, the, I think it's called the Bay Bolete mushroom. It's uh, it's one of those that actually stains blue, which mm -hmm. out here everyone says not to eat. But over in Germany, that's like one of the best edibles that everyone goes after. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but for me, it wasn't quite like the prepper thing. But now I'm thinking much more like that over the last few years, especially after COVID. Like that's become kind of my new focus. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe not so much, you know, go after the fancy garnish plants and whatnot you can use as garnishes but maybe get after those that can bring in a lot more calories and are easy to get and i know we're going to talk about milkweed today uh which i'm really excited about and that's kind of i feel like that plant kind of falls in that category a bit so mm -hmm. so learning about uh new wild plants though or mushrooms can be quite a you know daunting task for people getting into it and even like for me, who's done it for like five years or so, five, six years, like I'm still, you know, every time I'm very careful about learning a new species, but you're a much more seasoned forager than me. So I'm really curious about your process for researching and kind of familiarizing yourself with a new edible species. And I'm just curious what you can share with us on that. Well, as far as learning new species, I, I would say there's a lot of things that I've done over the years that have probably helped me expedite the process. And one of those things that I would love to share, and I've wanted to make a video about this on Instagram for a while, but one great way to learn plants is if you have a native nursery near you, they'll have all the plants tagged right there for you to look at and uh -huh. learn. That's a gold nugget and, right there. I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah. So like, uh, honestly, over the years, just visit nurseries, just go and look at these plants and get used to them through the seasons. And I mean... I own a gardening business here where I live, so I'm constantly at nurseries, but I've, I, I've just thought like, wow, um, that's our, yeah, it's a really good way to learn plants. Um, over the years, I've also had great 
luck and just meeting people along the way, like o- older people, like that actually had a historical use of plants. Mm. You could sometimes just encounter them and, hey, what's this? You know, oh, well, having a, having a mentor is what you're saying. <laughs> well, maybe maybe not necessarily a mentor, but many many mentors. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's why the Facebook groups are like pretty valuable. I think that's kind of a big part of my process is, you know, after I find something new, I, I'll get as many pictures as I can from different <clears> angles. I'll take pictures of the environment usually, like even maybe the soil if it's uh, a rooty vegetable, dig up the roots and really just try to document everything and then take it home and check again in my books, put it in Facebook yeah. groups. Maybe even send it to people like you. I get it with the burdock not too long ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, another another thing that I, I used to do when I very first began, and I think is a powerful way to learn, is I used, used to call it flipping. And mm-hmm. I, I would just I would just flip through books. Like I would just look at look at plants, not necessarily reading everything, but kind of just like flipping through uh and um I, I have many times been out in the woods, looked at a plant, said, I know this, and actually went to that exact page later that night. That's because smart. I had, yeah. Yeah, that's smart because, like, sometimes you're out looking for one plant, right? But you might see another because often what I've mm-hmm. noticed is that a lot of these edibles like to grow together, like, yeah. often like around river bottoms, creek bottoms, right? all these areas that humans used to settle around for a good reason, because that's where the mm-hmm. edibles are. That's a great idea. Just, yeah, just kind of chill in front of the fireplace and just flip through and try to put in your, in your head. So yeah. that when you go out, you might stumble on them an accident. I like that a lot. Yeah. That's a great tip. Yeah. I think the pictures are super valuable too, for me, just because then I can have something to go back to in terms of like time of the year for the following years. Right. That's a that's a good that's a big part I think of my process because like salsify is one I'm learning right now and I've been watching it for like two years and this year's the first year I really you know have harvested a lot and tried it in different ways and whatnot. Yeah. What part are you eating? Uh, right now, so I've been eating like the the flowers and then I would say the young shoots, maybe like the top half to top third of the plant. And mm-hmm. that's just been super, super tasty. I've dug up a bunch of roots, but I've yet to eat one. Um, mm-hmm. Just because, yeah, I'm, I'm always a bit careful, but I think there's really just not much that you can mess salsify up with. Especially, I don't think so either. Yeah, there's a few grasses, but if you like think about the latex, that's the big one of the big things that grasses don't have at all. So if you see that, mm-hmm. you can immediately count those out, basically. Yeah, and I don't think any grass is going to hurt you besides maybe give you a stomach ache. <laughs> yeah, right. People are juicing grass, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I never, under, never understood that, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actual wheat grass too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Are there any resources maybe that you find particularly helpful in your research? I know you have a great website and uh, Substack too that I'll definitely link to in the in the podcast episode description for people to check out. But besides yours, are there any others that you regularly like to go to? Um, for identification? Or yeah, just, just, just inspiration, yeah. identification, the whole uh, nine yards. When when Sam Thayer does have writings up, I, I really like to read his writings online, but yep. he, he seldomly puts those out because he's working on books all the time. Right. Um, I really love 
Forager Chef's blog. Yeah, that's a great blog. Um, Alan Burgo. Hank, yeah, Alan Burgo. Yep. I uh, like uh, Hank Shaw. Mm-hmm. His, his his blog pretty good. And he also has a Substack, I believe, which I haven't checked out though. I have not either. Yeah, I'm on his newsletter list, but I need to check out his Substack. But then, then if you're into mushrooms and things, there's there's tons of stuff out there. You know, um, what is that? Uh, fungi expert or something like that? Yeah, yeah, that's one. And I think yeah. it's also good to find like resources specific for your state. Like I found one for Montana. I think it's like MontanaPlants.com or something like that. And it like. It's got a really good database in there of everything. Is that a government website? Uh, no, I don't think it's .org, but I don't think it's government run. Okay, because we have one here in Michigan called Michigan Flora, mm-hmm. and it's a um, it's MSU, so it's the uh, Michigan State University Flora, and and it lists all of the species. Yeah, but um, if you read my thing about ramps <clears throat> on Substack. Yeah, then then you would see that I I listed that website, but that I said that they had an incorrect range map for ramps. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and then you also mentioned there the iNaturalist, which I've never thought about. So talk about that a little bit. That's a cool tool. So we will get back to the episode in just a bit. I just wanted to jump in real quick to let you guys know how you can best support the Year of Plenty podcast. If you get value from the show, please consider doing a monthly donation on Patreon for as little as $2 a month. Otherwise, if you're more into the one-time donations, you can leave a donation for however much you think is fair over at my Buy Me A Coffee page. Both platforms will be linked in the episode description. Also, please share an episode with your friends or on social media. Doing that will let other foodies like you and I discover the show and come along for the ride. And finally, if you want to connect with me personally, head over to my Instagram, which is at Wheeland. Follow me over there and let's get a conversation started. Okay, that's it. Thank you so much for your support. Let's get back to the episode. Oh, iNaturalist is actually amazing. You know, um, you go on there, say you want to learn a plant. I have this thing, like personally, where I want to be able to find it without the help. Yeah. It's just like it's just like a, a problem in my mind. Well, it's like um, it's like hunting elk, I think. Like eventually you just even though you might not be a trophy hunter, you want to get that big one cuz you've figured a lot out already. Yeah. So, with plants, I like to learn it, it's harder to do the longer you're in this, but I like to learn a couple a year. And um I I really like basically I'm at the point where uh there are some bucket list plants that I want to find, and I'm so tempted to go on iNaturalist and use it because they there's literally like you can just go there and it's marked on the map exactly where you can find this plant. Yeah. So so yeah, I have done that for things that I've already ID'd before, but I I actually tend to not allow myself to do that when I'm looking for a new plant. That's cool. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you're just at that level of of foraging, so it makes sense that you want a bit of a challenge, probably. Yeah, I do want the challenge. So, you know, I love learning. I mean, we kind of we kind of started out with talking about the um, you know, the the prepper scenario and getting into foraging because of that. And I like I said I do love learning and kind of creating content now about some of the wild foods that I think have a lot of high ROI, like return of investment in terms of like calories and the time you put in um mm-hmm. and just the sheer amount of food you can gather. So, I'm curious what like some of your favorite plants might be that you like to go after that could provide 
a lot of food without having to work quite too hard for them? Mm. Well, the the biggest one in my diet is obviously, like I've said this for many years, is wild rice. Mm. And that, and up front, yeah, that is a it is a lot of work up front because I'll be out there for a week, a year. Um, but then I eat for the entire year based on that one week. Wow. And that's, you you can get that pretty close to you. Um, there is wild rice here where I live, but it's not to the extent that it is in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So I, I actually do travel out there to, um, those other States. Cool. Uh, yeah. And it's a week, is it a week worth of harvesting or just a whole process from harvest to making it, you know, storable, I guess. Um, it is usually about four or five days of harvesting. And then um, I, I, I've been doing it for 11 years now. Mm. And um, I don't, I don't uh, process it myself. I actually just take it to a Native American reservation. And there's a guy that I have processed my rice for me. Wow, that's sweet. Yeah. That's cool yeah. to have. Tell me about the wild rice a bit. I mean, that's one where you have to like canoe, right? Kayak. I did it once uh, with Rob Greenfield. Uh, I think his name is Rob Greenfield. Uh, he came to visit uh, in Wisconsin once and um, hit me up about trout fishing. And then he took me out uh, wild wild rice harvesting, but it was kind of too late in the season, so we only got a few. But, yeah, what we did is like canoe, have a big blanket, and just kind of hit the chaffs and waited for them to fall onto the blanket. Is that kind of what you do? <laughs> yeah. But it's actually funny that you mentioned uh, Rob Greenfield because um, – so my rising partner lives in Ashland, Wisconsin. Yeah. And and he rices with Rob almost every year. You know, like af- th- after he's done rising with me. That's funny because I think I might have been at the same house then because <laughs> he was visiting a friend out there and I came uh, to to hang out with him and yeah, he we took his friends canoes and stuff. So maybe it's the same guy. <laughs> where were you at? I do, it's been a while. I can't I can't say if, to be honest. Okay. But I oh, remember it was like a lake house, walk down this little hill, there's garages, hmm. and then you walk in the back. No. I don't think that was the I don't think that was the same, guy, the same but, guy. Uh, but it's still pretty funny. But either way, wild rice is a great resource for a lot of calories. Um and then a lot of calories also in nuts. And then uh, as as we were prepared to talk about, you know, milkweed. That's right. a that's a vegetable that's um eatable through all seasons yeah yeah Yeah. that's what i love about it we'll definitely get into that so for nuts what do you would you like to go after there um well so in michigan we have we have the northern half and the southern half of the state are uh disjointed by their soil geography Mm -hmm. so uh our geology i mean so um basically where i live super sandy and um you only get like a oaks and some black walnuts and uh, beaked hazelnuts and uh, Southern Michigan is much more rich soil and it's uh, clay soil, very, uh, a lot more damp Mm -hmm. usually. Um, And then you get hickory nuts and black walnuts and butternuts and um, hazelnuts and, you know, it's much more rich. So I like to go down there and collect hickory nuts um, and up here, I do a lot of uh, acorns and black walnuts and things like that. Yeah, acorns is a fascinating one that I I learned a lot about, but then never got after it while I was in Wisconsin. But yeah, that's one growing up where you're always told, you know, never eat the acorn. But it is it is a really good staple that a lot of Native Americans used, right? Well, 
Um, historically, they say that, yeah, but I, I think that um, as acorn as like a societal staple, mm-hmm. um, it was confined to the West Coast and particularly like Southern California to, mm. to mid California. So not so yeah. much up where we were or where you are. They were probably going after the black walnuts there. Yeah. Black walnuts and hickory nuts and all those things that are a lot easier to process. Right. Like, like for me, they're not wild, but I pick a, a couple hundred pounds of chestnuts a year because they're something that we can eat. And when you have chestnuts, it's like kind of hard to devote your time to picking acorns when chestnut, you don't have to leach. Yeah. Right. And it, so are all chestnuts edible or I thought it was only like the specific kind. Um, anything in the genus Castanea huh. is, is edible. Cool. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. That's, that's exciting. Yeah. I mean, there's not many left though, right? Well, I'm not picking American chestnuts. Yeah. As I, as, as I said, I, uh, these are like, I've, I've spent years driving around and I can see chestnut trees while I'm driving. Yeah. And, uh, if I see a chestnut tree in somebody's yard, I will knock on the door and ask him if I can pick it. So that's, that's interesting. Cause I've, I've never done that really for foraging. I don't think maybe a few times, like for dandelions, I've done it, but that's a, that's a good tip. I think just like similar with hunting, knock on some doors and do you think people are pretty, are they pretty open to letting you go on their property? When, when you get something like chestnuts, like that have a very spiky outer core, like, like husk, um, they are usually very happy to have you take them away. (laughs) Yeah, true, (laughs) true. They're like, I don't want to walk on these. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you usually like present it to them in a way that's like, hey, I'll teach you about these or like, hey, I'll share some of the harvest now? <laughs> no, no. no I, I mean, I just ask them, do you want these? Can I pick them? Um, and if somebody has let me for do, do it for years, then occasionally we will um, bring them like a little bag of chestnut flour. Okay. Or, or, or something like that or help them rake up the husks. Love it. You know, yeah. things like that. Yeah, give back a little bit like that. That's sweet. Yeah, I, th- I think for me that, like, I mean, the two plants I'm kind of learning a lot about right now that I think have a high ROI are salsify and then uh, burdock is the other one. Mm. But we don't really have much for nuts out here in Montana besides, like, pine cones. I don't know if you count those as nuts, but um, I, that's something I, I want to get into is the pine cones. I just saw a video of a guy, like, taking the green ones and boiling them and saying they're super tender. Have you ever done that? Mm-mm. No. Are you talking about, um, is, was this on Instagram? Yeah. The other day. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. it, it was like they're, they're, pine yeah. cones are the new ramps or whatever was the catch. <laughs> <laughs> um, they seem to be pretty in vogue right now doing like putting sugar on pine cones and kind of making like a little weird syrup. Mm. Um, I've never tried it though. Cause yeah. uh, it, to me, it, it it seems like it wouldn't be good. Yeah. But but that's just maybe my bias, you know. Yeah. I mean they are I've had spruce tips and whatnot. They can be quite powerful. Like they they bring a lot of flavor with them. Yeah. So but I did want to say to you, um, I have a funny anecdote about burdock. Yeah. So um I was teaching a foraging class maybe six years ago mm-hmm. and um I had an actual like Japanese woman come to my class. And she had recently moved to the United States and she, I got to talking about burdock and then she, you know, it's a cultivated food there in Japan. Yeah, gobo they call it. Yeah. Yep. And, and she said she got here and she was excited to see it growing all over the place. 
and uh, she dug it up, cooked it up, and then she said she ended up basically throwing it all out because it tasted horrible. Oh, really? Yeah, and she said that um, cultivated gobo tastes way better. That's like her words. Yeah, well, from what I was reading out in Japan, it's like the great burdock is what they cultivate, and we have mm -hmm. the, the minor one, I believe, is kind of what's widespread. And then um, they also like to grow it in like sand and some really loose substrate so it is really easy for that root to grow and be tender because <laughs> i've noticed that now like if i get it from some areas around the river where it's really rocky it's been a lot tougher than harvesting on the property i'm at, at right now where it's a lot softer soil those were a lot <clears throat> tastier than the ones from public land yeah yeah um but i i, I always thought burdock kind of tasted like a dirty carrot <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean I, what I had was pretty damn good so far. Everything I've eaten this year has been like nutty, sweet kind of. It has a weird smell to it, I think. Mm -hmm. Like when you smell it, you're like, eh. but then when you cook it, it's it's pretty damn good. Uh, and yeah, the next step is the whole flower stalk. Um, I read a, a bunch about it now and already harvested one. It's in the fridge right now. So trying to get that at the right time and uh, see how that'll be because I know that can be edible if you get it at the right time. <laughs> Yeah, I actually just taught a foraging class on Saturday, and I just uh, handed out a bunch of um, you know I, those stocks because it's an invasive species here, and we were I was letting everybody eat them. Yeah, and uh, the the thought on how they tasted varied from person to person, but okay. So when you do the flower stock with burdock, do you um, do you peel it at all? So I yeah. noticed, yeah, okay. So you get the inner core basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That'll be interesting. Uh, I'm going to try it this week, so we'll see how it is. I'm excited. Yeah, I, I actually think that's one of those ones where um, just like the root, you're mm -hmm. going to notice that the flavor can vary like a lot from plant to plant. Yeah. I think that's yeah. common, though, for a lot of wild edibles. No, it's like very – like a lot depends on area mm -hmm. flavor-wise, I think. Well, definitely with some things, I'm not sure with, uh, with, with some things they're pretty similar, like stinging nettle seems to taste the same where, yeah. wherever you harvest. And ramps, like there's just so much garlicky onion flavor there. It's yeah, hard to, to get Do a you different guys have ramps? We don't, but I did find mm. the short stalked onion here. I believe that's what it is. It's just a 50 minute hike into some really steep country. So I haven't been able to go back cause I want to go back when it flowers to confirm um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it all smells like onion. I'm just a bit careful because of the death cam is out here and mm -hmm. uh, I haven't learned that enough, seen it enough to, you know, straight up be like, okay, this is definitely not death camis. And as is with ramps and any like onion smelly plant like that, you know, once you pick a lot, you get, get the smell in your fingers and then you might be smelling on like a plant and it smells like onion you're like oh it's an onion or a ramp oh okay but it's yeah, not because because you know it's just your fingers that smell like it so i'm always mm -hmm. a bit careful there but yeah that's one i want to get after i do have i did find some ramp seeds that i had in my uh in a ziploc bag from like three years ago from a property out in lacrosse wisconsin where i lived and uh i'm just gonna try because i live in a river bottom you know i'm just gonna try to plant them and see what happens <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you might make some you might make some native plant people mad yeah, that's true maybe i shouldn't do that yeah <laughs> yeah i wondered i I just maybe i'll just do it in my backyard i just want to see like if it you know 
how it does. That'd be cool to see. But yeah, I you're bet right. you would work. Yeah. It is. I mean, the river bottoms are like the closest out here that you can get to Michigan, Wisconsin type terrain and ecosystem. Um, a lot of cottonwoods, you know, aspens and grass and milk. There's some milkweed I've seen, salsify, like those kind of plants. So I think mm -hmm. it's the closest you can get to it. But yeah, while we're while we're on milkweed, let, let's get into it. Uh, I asked you that I'd love to talk about a plant that kind of has that, you know, can be found in most states and, and can be harvested throughout most of the season. And you mentioned milkweed, so uh, let's let's get into it. First of all, like, what kind of plant is milkweed, and like, does it play an important role in our ecosystem? Um, yeah, actually, milkweed is a very important plant for monarch butterflies but that that's like the poster child for monarchs like is is milkweed but in fact um that's just what what they they eat like they um but actually um a funny fact they're very horrible pollinators of the flowers of milkweed really the, yeah so like what actually accounts for most of the pollination of milkweeds is uh bees and wasps okay and um but other than that Milkweed is important and integral part of ecosystems for all kinds of insects. So everybody thinks of only monarch. And I think that sort of siloed thinking is actually negative mm -hmm. because um, it makes us think like, oh, I'm only doing this for monarchs when in fact there's lots of bugs that are in decline right now. Um, but milkweed is, is cool. I'm sure out West there you have uh, Asclepias uh, speciosa, which is the showy milkweed. Yeah. So I haven't been like, I'm pretty new to it. I've been seeing them from the road, more so in eastern Montana. I was just on a trip there, and I saw a lot there, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure what species it is yet. Uh, and there are quite a lot of species of milkweed, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's like uh, uh, anywhere, I think, between 72 and some like, something like 100 species that are native to North America. Wow, that's a lot, I feel Yeah, like. it. And, and well, five of those are edible for us. Okay. Yeah. Um, at least five in Eastern North America. But um, I know that showy milkweed, the one that you have out there, that is one of those edible species. Okay. That's good to know. I'll have to look into it because I, in preparation of the conversation, I, I looked at some resources online to see if like I can, if the common milkweed grows out here, which is not the showy one. And but the common milkweed is kind of the one that everyone writes about and says is safe to eat, right? And yeah, let me just pull up this link here because there were a few like it was the field guide montana.gov. And yeah, they say we have the green milkweed, the low milkweed, narrow leafed milkweed, showy milkweed that's all it shows all over Montana, uh, mm -hmm. the oval leafed milkweed, swamp milkweed, and then the world milkweed. Yeah, so is do you know if. The showy one's edible for sure. The uh, Show, showy one is edible for sure. Um, I know common milkweed, showy milkweed, poke milkweed. I believe green milkweed. That looks um, like that's here too. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what I would actually suggest is um, Sam Thayer's new book has those five edible species. Okay, that's great because uh, his old one only talks about Forager's Harvest only talks about the common milkweed. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I've known for a long time that showy milkweed was edible, but um, what I didn't know was that 
um, until I got his book, I was actually surprised to see that there was three other milkweeds yeah. that, were, that, that were edible and I've never eaten them. Um, but showy milkweed, um, back in 2019, um, the summer of 2019, me and my family took a trip to South Dakota and Wyoming and we got to see, um, a lot of showy milkweed. Cool. Well, why do you know why it's called showy milkweed? Yeah. Cause the flowers are, um, very beautiful and you know so evolutionarily i think that uh common milkweed and showy milkweed are basically like the same plants and i think that the only divergence thing there is the the flowers are different okay because otherwise they look nearly identical yeah so maybe we should talk a bit about what the plant looks like for people sure i mean tough to describe over audio but yeah, so common milkweed is um, virtually everywhere. I mean, where I live, th- this is the kind of ironic part, is that people freak out about there not being enough milkweed, but it's virtually everywhere. Yeah. Roadsides, any opening that you can see. Um, it's a plant that grows in large colonies. It grows by an underground rhizome, and it can get um, four to six feet tall, depending on the soil conditions. It's got opposite leaves that are a little fuzzy, rounded, no point at the end, and um, heavily veined. And then, obviously, milkweed, because when you break it, it exudes a little latex sap that looks kind of milky. Right. And uh, what, yeah. what, do you know what latex is? I've always, I never really looked it up. I don't know what exactly it consists of. No, I don't yeah. uh, actually know that, yeah. Yeah, I should look that up. Yeah, and then obviously as it progresses, it'll have like flowers, right, that uh, kind of resemble pro- broccoli and mm-hmm. before it like blooms. And then it grows these pods that are, I'm yeah. sure people, they kind of look okra-like, I would say. Yeah, they look like little weird elf shoes. Yeah, that's true. They do yeah. kind of look like that. And uh, yeah. the, I think from what I was reading, if I remember correctly, the leaves are a smooth margined. Um, mm-hmm. so there's no yep. like zigzag or teeth on there. And then also, uh, the whole plant has like these tiny hairs on them, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are some big yeah, it's plants. a very, very fuzzy plant. So when you say there's the five edible ones that kind of, you know, implies that there is some toxic ones out there. Mm-hmm. So definitely need to be a little bit more careful here for sure. And, and study this plant before you try it and, and eat it, right? Yeah, but but I would say that common milkweed is such an easy one to learn that once you learn to recognize it, I mean, um, the only stage that I would actually worry or, or caution people about about being careful would be the shoot stage. Mm-hmm. And, and right now, while we're recording it, we're well past the shoot stage. Yeah, so the shoot stage would be right as it comes out. Right as it comes out, and the only the only reason I say that is because I have been with foragers out harvesting milkweed shoots, and literally seen somebody pick a dogbane shoot. Right, and that's one of the biggest um, lookalikes, right? That we should study the dogbane, the common dogbane. I think it's called. Yeah. So, so milkweed and dogbane are both part of the same plant family. They're part of the family called the Apocynaceae. Okay. And. Um, so actually milkweed is in that family. Um, dogbane also exudes a latexy sap. And um, but dogbane is very shiny. 
you know, it's got um, no hairs on it. The, uh, the leaves are far skinnier. But yeah, definitely people should take their time and learn these plants so you can tell the difference. Yeah, I think I read in, um, in Sam's book too that you can take the dark bane leaves and rub them against each other and they'll make like a squeaky noise. So they're a lot more like succulent maybe than the milkweed leaves. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. That's, yeah, yep. that's, so definitely study those too if you're listening right now and, and going after, uh, after milkweed, the dog banes one to, to really, to really learn. But I don't think dog bane ever gets to pods like milkweed does. And I think I also read that, now I don't remember for which one it is, but I think for dog bane, the leaves stay the same size no matter how long the shoot is, whereas milkweed, the ones, more to the top of the stalk are going to be a lot smaller. Mm -hmm. um, but I might might be switching those two up there. No, that's no. Dogbane has incredibly small leaves in comparison to uh, milkweed. Okay. So that's yeah. good to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting plant for sure. I'm uh, I'm very excited to, to get out there and, and get after it. And there is another distinguishing factor, right? Dogbane's very, very bitter from what I was reading. And uh, milkweed is, has this myth around it of being bitter, but it's actually not quite true. Can you kind of speak on that a little bit? Yeah, so um, for the longest time, it was, it was said, and this, this was passed down from Yule Gibbons, so the author of the book, The Stalking the Wild Asparagus. Yeah, very famous uh, foraging author. Yeah, he was so famous that he was actually on like the what would be today like the Tonight Show. Really? <laughs> yeah, back in the day, he was on many times on the Tonight Show or whatever it, it was. Um, and yeah, he kind of um, had this big thing out there about how milkweed had to be boiled like three different times in order to be considered safe to eat. And what Sam Thayer did was uh, kind of came along and. He said he just got progressively lazier about boiling it. So he boiled it, you know, instead of three times, he boiled it two times. And then he noticed that it wasn't bitter. And then uh, he boiled it one time instead of two times. And he still noticed, oh, wow, it's not even that bitter, you know. So nobody knows for certain, but there is, uh, this is Sam's hypothesis. And that is that um, Yule Gibbons, he thinks, mistook dogbane for milkweed and then as a result boiled the crap out of dogbane multiple times and then ate and then ate dogbane and i was like you know Jesus. Oh, yeah <laughs> um but i just want to say for the record that i actually don't think that happened because i think that yule gibbons was a uh, pretty famous forager and for a reason and i think that that'd be like somebody like you know me or sam accidentally like getting the wrong species so um, I'd be willing to guess that Sam's lesser known theory is that there was maybe species introgression. Mm. So it was like milkweed that was growing near another species of milkweed that maybe was a little more bitter and maybe there was some hybridization. Okay. That, yeah, that's something that can happen. And I mean, yeah. if it was that bitter, he probably was like, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I would do the yeah. same quite honestly. Yeah. Cool. And I, I mean, dogbane is poisonous to eat, but you can use it for, I mean, Native Americans, I believe, used it for like string, right? To like tie nets and whatnot. I've, I, have you ever heard of that? 
Yes, but uh, first thing I do want to say is that dog bane is not poisonous; it's mm. toxic. Okay. So, um, so toxic and poisonous are two different things, right? So, like, if you eat dog bane, you will get sick, and you'll probably have a stomach ache and uh, maybe like a nasty toilet visit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you are not going to die from eating dog bane. Okay. Whereas, um, if you ate um, wild poison poison hemlock, you will die. Right. So, or some yeah. death camas. Yeah. Yep. Man, okay, that's that's good to know. like yeah, you're right. Toxic and poisonous does not mean the same thing. And that's something people I guess should be aware of when they're reading about wild plant edible plants out there. I never really considered yeah. that too much to me. It's like they're synonymous almost. But yeah, you are right. One actually kills you, one will yeah. make you just sick and you might not have the best day for a while or a couple of days. Yeah. But um, dogbane was used for um, its very strong cordage, so so yeah, I mean that was a bowstrings, all kinds of all kinds of things that were used like that. Yeah, I I'd love to one day get out there and make like a a fishing net out of like a, a smelting net, you know, mm-hmm. out of out of dogbane. I mean that would be a long project, but <laughs> kind of it would my, be a cool bucket, project yeah, though. Yeah, on my bucket yeah. list for sure. So where does uh, the milkweed grow usually? Like what are the best sp- uh, best places to start looking and kind of what habitat are we looking for? The best places for some place like common milkweed would be like farms. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like so many Anywhere. of wild yeah. wild plants, right, that you can eat. Yeah. Um, but historically, a milkweed would have been in a sunny place that has um, amp- like ample sunlight, not a lot of trees around. Um Occasionally, you will see milkweed growing in the shade, but it seems to not spread as easily, and they actually take on a kind of weirder form. Mm. And then, um, yeah, so just typically milkweed is going to always be out in the open, sunny field. So as someone is hiking through you know, a park or whatever, as soon as you get into that pasture, into that field area, start looking, keeping your eyes out. Yep, I would say that that's a pretty good idea because um, milkweed is extremely abundant. I mean, common milkweed is extremely abundant. Uh, and then I have a limited amount of uh, experience out west, but as far as I can tell, it's very abundant. The uh, western or the showy milkweed. Yeah, the showy milkweed out here. Yeah, the list didn't have the common milkweed at all on there, so I think I'm just going to focus on the showy one for now to see if I can find that. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a perennial, meaning that it comes back every year. So when you find that big field, mark the spot, right? And come back to it. So can you kind of talk about like milkweed throughout the seasons and what to harvest to when? Yeah, absolutely. I'll speak just to common milkweed, but I think that this information can also be used for showy milkweed. Um, So, as far as common milkweed goes, here in Michigan, we basically spring rolls around after an eternity of winter, <laughs> and then um, the first thing that we're going to eat will be the shoots, mm-hmm. and um, those are eaten anywhere from you know four to eight inches tall, where you can just pluck the entire thing right out of the ground. And it'll pro- basically, from pictures I was seeing, it's like short green succulent kind of stalk with a little crown of leaves on top almost. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you, you eat those and um, those are attached to the underground rhizome 
that forms part of the colony. And I assure you that as a person that owns a gardening business, um, you pluck those things out and that thing's going to be back a week later. Wow. Um, and, and I've had to fight milkweed in many, many of my clients' yards. So um, I know for a fact. That's got to hurt for you. It's like, oh, <laughs> now I got to get rid of this. <laughs> well, that, it's not not that bad because, like I said, milkweed is everywhere. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's contrary to the popular image that milkweed is this rare species. Do you ever tell them, like, hey, you could be eating this? Maybe not. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. I do. Okay. You know, but you got you got some people that they just hire me to – you know, weed their gardens. They don't care. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so we ate the shoot in the spring. Then comes next uh, what I would call the tender tops phase, mm-hmm. you know, and that's just basically an extension of the shoot. You're just you're just eating only the portion then that's tender at the top. You're no longer going to take the whole thing out of the ground. Um, and this stage is actually a vitally important stage. And this is where we're at right now in, in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Is um so it's, so it's June nineteenth right now, just for people listening. June June nineteenth, right? And this is important because people need to know this. Um, a long time ago, I read a paper on how you should actually chop back your milkweed halfway mm. um, during the season to help monarch butterflies. And the reason that they say that this helps them is because monarch caterpillars actually like to eat and thrive more on young, tender, new growth of milkweed. So so what happens is when a forager or like a gardener comes in and they cut that stuff halfway back, um, new growth shoots out of the leaf axles. Mm. And, um, and you get those little, like, I like to call them the plant armpits. So like you, you pinch the, like a basil plant, right? And then it, it makes it a little bit more bushy. Right, right. Yeah, so the new growth comes out of the leaf axles. So same thing happens with milkweed. So um, I read that, like, must have been nine years ago that I read that in the Master Gardener Association paper saying that that's how you should do it to help monarchs. And I have been saying this message for years, eating milkweed helps monarchs. Yeah, that's a Um, great point. So, um, so you could be like the master gardeners and you could just slash the milkweed back and not eat it, or you could slash it back and eat the tender tops. Yeah. And have a lot of food if you yep. find a big field. Oh, that's, that's cool. Cause yeah, a lot of what I was reading online is this concern for monarch butterflies and people are saying, you know, you got to keep the milkweed around and don't kill it. And yeah. Yeah. So, um, that, yeah, that. That is like 100% proven. And in fact, I had this experience of telling Sam Thayer this many years ago after I had written a, a blog post about this and uh, him him kind of saying, I don't know, that doesn't seem accurate. And then um, in his latest book, he actually says that it, it's true. Nice. In, in, in the common book we did. Yeah. So I felt vindicated when I read that. Good. Yeah. I'll have yeah. to get that book. Uh yeah, uh, it's I, I saw it, but I didn't know it would be such an updated version compared to the old ones. So that's pretty cool. Makes yeah. sense, though. So after after that stage, um, so that's let's say May. The shoot starts probably now mm-hmm. June. You're a little farther into the pl- uh, the growth cycle. You take just the tops. Yeah. And what's next? So next are the unopened flower buds. So that thing that you said looks like broccoli. Right. 
So um, eating the unopened flower buds. Um, and then after that comes the pods. And then uh, basically at that point you're done. But there's another, there's another cool thing though that, that happens. And this is what I was speaking about earlier of like how these, these, this plant can last so long. Yeah. Is that at every stage of your harvest, um, you're delaying the plant flowering, right? Mm, yeah. So say you have like a patch of milkweed that's like 20 by 20. And you just like being like scientific minded person, I'm going to, I'm going to harvest this, right? You in, in the first week you harvest all the shoots, right? Or, or of like half the patch. Yeah. And then a week later you harvest the other half. Um, and as I mentioned before, they're all going to shoot back up anyway, right? Yeah. From the rising. So, yeah. yep. So then, uh, maybe like a month goes by and you harvest all the tops in the half and one half, and then you leave the other ones and don't touch those for the rest of the season so that they get normal flowering times. But at, at what I'm getting at is that basically as we harvest through the season, we're actually extending the season for all of the other vegetables that come later. I love that. So yeah, you're offsetting it and you're kind of controlling the harvest there. Yeah. That's genius. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty cool. Like sometimes um, you can have fresh milkweed pods in um, if you play your cards right in September. Wow. And when do you usually get them? Like when are, if you weren't going to do that? Yeah, probably like, you know, mid to late July. Okay. So probably like yeah. August here. Everything's a bit yeah. later. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, um, that sort of, that sort of thing is like something that, um, asparagus farmers know about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like wild asparagus is done, but people at the farm farmer's market here are still selling asparagus because they keep cutting it and cutting it and cutting it. Ah, okay. That's yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, there's so much overlap too between foraging and gardening, right? That you can, mm -hmm. and I mean, you you talk about this whole thing of wild tending um, in some of your substacks, and that kind of goes into this, right? Mm -hmm. Can you kind of talk, just touching that real quick? Wild tending, wild tending, yeah, yeah. Wild tending is just something that um, you're just trying to do to like make your landscape more forageable mm -hmm. so first and foremost obviously you want to learn what's out there um and then if you learn what's out there is not enough like it sounds it sounds like your landscape might be kind of like you know a little bit lacking in some edibles yeah um wild tending would just basically be doing what you can to make that that place that you live more forageable so like montana historically a lot of berries Mm -hmm. you know should have been there so you should have had like uh western huckleberries and things like that um and they used fire you know for that so that would be a tool of wild tending but today you can't just go around setting yeah. things on fire so <laughs> so just uh you know it could be anything like so stinging nettle is one of my favorite greens mm -hmm. and it does not like to grow in the shade so basically any tree that encroaches on my favorite patch just gets cut down, mm. you know, to, to make it so that my patch can continue to thrive in the, in this full sun. Right. So that that's wild tending. Yeah. So focusing in on one of those species and helping it establish, helping it grow. Um, mm. You can also spread the seeds, for example, that's one way yep. to do it. Right. 
Yeah, I really yes. love that. I plant wild plum seeds all over the place around here. Genius. Yeah. I yeah. I tried uh, propagating it once, but it was my first time trying to propagate anything, and it didn't really work out. But yeah, uh, I wish. Yeah, I need to get some uh, for out here because the, the the land I'm on right now, where I'm renting, I I really told them to try to establish some plums, just because it's great for wildlife too, and for mm -hmm. them. They're I mean, wild plums are my favorite. One of my favorite wild edibles. They're like candy from nature. Mm -hmm. it was so you had you had them. I, I'm assuming when you were in Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. I ran. I was scouting for deer, and then all of a sudden, I found this giant pad, like patch of trees. And I'm like, "What is this?" And I started looking it up, and found out, yeah, they're wild plums. And I had no idea that was a thing until I had them. And yeah, it was really good. Yeah, they're they're amazing. I I don't have a lot of them around here, but usually at the same time I go harvesting wild rice, they start to ripen, and um, I'll usually bring back like a five gallon bucket to my house. Yeah. It was so easy well, for us to mm -hmm. just gr grab a, a bunch in like two hours. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good one. So yeah, I, I love wild tending though. Like the idea of it, cause it's, it's like you're giving back while taking, you're taking and giving mm -hmm. back. Right. And you're really, yeah. I mean, sometimes even the taking will wild tend at the same time, like for milkweed, how you were explaining. So that's pretty mm -hmm. cool. So um, the leaves, though, for milkweed, going back to that, doesn't sound like the leaves are really something people harvest. No, no, not necessarily. You can eat the little tiny leaves on top, you know, but usually people kind of discard the leaves. Okay. And when you say so the, the broccoli stage, I'm just going to call it the like before the flowers really open up, um, how do you like cooking that? Um, just kind of give it a quick like maybe like a two minute boil mm. and then i discard the water and then i'll um either put some salt on it like that or i then saute it in some oil okay yeah it, you probably do things really similar to me like keep it really simple like yeah a lot of these wild foods you don't have to do much to them because they pack so much flavor yeah you know, oh yeah and unique flavor it's not like you gotta mask anything really Actually, this year, I sort of reverted back with all of my greens. Um, I had for many years just sautéed them. Mm -hmm. But this year, I got so heavy into um, just doing a quick blanch. Yeah. And it, it's so much tastier. I can't believe I skipped that for so many years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the sautéing and like a lot of fat and stuff, that will add some flavor, right, from the fat. Mm -hmm. And like blanching kind of just preserves whatever the the plant has yeah so i do like to add some butter or something because i'm sure as you know if you're into the health thing like all those greens um a lot of the nutrition can't be right taken out without a fat yeah the fat uh, soluble vitamins in there right mm -hmm. that's yep. a mistake a lot of vegans and vegetarians do is they don't find a good fat source to eat their greens with and plants with and then they don't, don't yep. even absorb the nutrients in there yeah yeah it's unfortunate yeah so what about the other plant uh parts of the plant is it all pretty similar how you cook it yeah pretty much i mean it it is all the same plant it's got all pretty much the same taste it's just like different applications yeah so yeah it's all all pretty much the same if we focus on like the pods because i mentioned they to me they look like okra 
And I just for the first time a few weeks ago had pickled okra, which is amazing, by the way. Like, I don't know, mm -hmm. I've never had it. Um, but yeah, I think like pickling or maybe even fermenting those milkweed pots would be really interesting. I have never done either, but um, I did actually just, uh, what was it? So I was at the Great Lakes Foragers gathering and um, this was... That's a big, big fest, right? Big kind of... Yeah, there was like... I think this this year was the 10th anniversary, and I think there was like 30 teachers, including me, and uh, Sam Thayer was there, and um, yeah, it was a it was a huge event, and um, must have been 300 people. Wow! Um, and uh, you should have seen the line of people waiting for the acorn pancakes on Sunday morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, somebody had brought pickled milkweed. Like the shoots or the pods? The pot, the pods. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I did get to taste those. Was it good? Yeah, it was pretty good. It was like, you know, kind of mushy. Not not much crunch anymore? No. Yeah. I think that also can yeah, depend on if you can it and whatnot, like if you quick pickle. Mm. and Yeah. And I, I think the shoots would be really interesting to pickle as well, because from what I was reading, they're very green bean-like. Is that right? In mm -hmm. flavor? Yeah, and people love like their dilly beans, right? So I can see like yeah. some dilly milkweed being really good. I I really like. Uh, I've never done it with milkweed, but I have a big fascination with just fermenting vegetables. Mm -hmm. So just in salt. Yeah. Like like same way you do sauerkraut. Yep. Just like a lacto ferment. Yep. I love I love to do that. So actually, back to burdock. That's one of the ways that I like to eat burdock because I think it makes the flavor a lot tastier is to have uh, the root sliced really thin and then just put into a big brine to let ferment. Interesting. So for the burdock, do you just cross-section it? So, yep. okay. So not the long <clears throat> way, like not like maybe fingers, but more cross. Oh yeah. You could, you could do that too, but I, I've always just done cross-section. Okay. So for people listening that have never seen a burdock root, it's kind of like an, a parsnip, I would say, or like a, <clears throat> yeah, just a long tap root and you can, just kind of slice it up. For burdock, do you eat if it's do you eat it if it's hollow? Have you tried that? Yeah, I have. Okay, yeah, I did too, and I've read can can like different things about it now, and I thought it was still fine if it was hollow. What did they say? Well, some people said were just saying in their posts and whatnot to just discard the hollow parts, but yeah. um, then I saw some others that weren't doing that videos, and I tried it, and it was just fine. Yeah. Um Usually the hollow part to me would signify that maybe like a bug had gotten in there. Mm. And I'm not necessarily afraid of eating bugs, so. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Extra protein, yeah. right? Yeah. Heck yeah. So milkweed, it also had some historical uses. Do you know anything about that for Native yeah. Americans and whatnot? I mean, uh, actually, one of the first memories I have about learning milkweed was going to a uh, foraging class um, that was at the, I was at this event and somebody was offering a foraging class and I remembered them talking about milkweed and how it was poisonous and you can't eat milkweed. And, um, and then I remembered getting a foraging book. So this would have been like a long time ago, like maybe even like 18 years ago. And I, I got a foraging book and I started to look through it and do the flipping like I told you. And I remember reading the milkweed section and having the little triangle with the caution sign. Yeah. So like and, and, and it said, yeah, toxic, don't eat. 
Um, and then in the comments at the bottom, it said, Native Americans ate and used this plant. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I remember it. being like, yeah, what? Um, so, um, yeah, Native Americans made use of a lot of plants uh, extensively throughout their range. Um, you can get a book if you really do want to get into this or anybody listening wants to. Uh, there's a book called Native American Ethnobotany okay, by Daniel Mowerman. And uh, that is a very extensive um, book with tons of resources on um, every way that Native Americans used every plant in their in their range that's sweet i'll have to order that right away i'll put a link in the podcast description for anyone listening that's that's a great well, book just to let you know that is quite an expensive book it is okay it's it like is. one of those that they don't print anymore kind of um, deal, it's just it's a you know it's a book that's, it's like gotta be like three inches thick oh yeah okay yeah um it's uh it's a big resource to have though right so yeah like, like it, it, so if you say any plant you want to look up that was native right because they don't have a lot of there are some non-natives but like there's not going to be like the modern day invasive species like i don't think burdock would be in there mm -hmm. um but every single plant that is native to north america it'll have some sort of listing for how that plant was used wow i'm yeah, that's definitely worth getting for me. I can already see like the the benefit from reading that in the long term, you know. Um one one problem with the book though is that you're going to have to know your scientific names to look mm. these plants up. Okay. So, so like if you're going to look up milkweed, you got to look up Asclepias. So. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, still doable today with today's technology. Yep. That's something I need to improve in my foraging journey is like I don't know many of the scientific names, but I should really start you know, maybe doing some note cards and flipping through them and, and really yeah. putting, putting them into my head. Finally. I like to think of them as uh, Harry Potter spells. Oh, that is <laughs> genius. Makes it and then they're, yeah, it's fun. Much more easy to learn. Yeah. Allium trichocum, not allium trichocum. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sweet. Yeah, so I also read, though, that Native Americans used to milkweed for, like, clothing. And then what's pretty cool was in, like, I didn't, like, take a note of it, but I think it was, like, early in the, in the 20th century during World War II, they had a cotton shortage or something like that. And they actually, oh, no, a down shortage. And they used milkweed as down filling for, like, pillows and, and uh, seats and vehicles and whatnot. So I think that there might still to this day be a manufacturer in milk that does that with common milkweed in Canada. That, yeah, that's that's sweet. Like, why yeah. don't more people do that? There's so much of that stuff. Because so we should maybe talk about that. Like once the once the pots get too far, they'll start having like what do you even call that? Like hairy, downy looking stuff <clears throat> in there. Yeah, milkweed fluff. Milkweed fluff, yeah, that's a good way yeah. to describe it. And <laughs> at that point, it's not edible anymore, right? No. Yeah, you want to get it. Yeah, when when is like the time? Like, are there any signs? Is the, it just the, the 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 signs are all in how it feels in your hand, right? So, when I'm out har harvesting milkweed pods, uh, I like to give each one a little squeeze, mm. and if it's really firm. Um, then it goes in the basket. If it's a really like soft thing or I can, it has a lot of give, I will just leave it on the plant. Okay. 
That's a really yeah. good tip right there. Sweet. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, is there anything else about milkweed you wanted to share? I think we covered it pretty just thoroughly. Milkweed, milkweed um, this is not related to foraging, but it just has really cool little pollen sacks that are called pollinia. And mm. if you look up videos, like when when insects pollinate them, the, the plant actually kind of like has this mechanism that attaches it to their legs. Wow. And, uh, and they don't really realize it's happening. So they're thinking they're getting pollen. And then this thing just like automatically mechanically attaches to their legs. And then um, it's cool. Like just that look up a cool. slow, a slow motion video of it. Yeah. yeah. What does that call it again? It's called pollinia. Pollinia. Okay. Yeah. Little, little like pollen sacks. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'll have to look that up. That's cool. It's crazy how plants like evolve like that. Uh, I mean, burdock, right? It's so sticky, mm -hmm. super sticky, yep. and that's what Velcro came from. Yeah, um, yeah. Burdock is also uh, an aster. An aster, yeah. Which that's thistle, right? Thistle family. Thistles and aster. Um, lot, a lot of asters, sun sunflowers. Mm -hmm. So they're all related. And artichoke, Pretty. artichokes even. Artichoke. Yeah. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, I guess I do need to get into the scientific uh, names more because you're going to get just so much so much better at identifying things, right? Because a lot of those <clears throat> still have similar ID factors and similarities in where they grow and whatnot. So you can build like mental patterns a lot better, I think. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. So yeah, hopefully our little section here, our little segment on milkweed will motivate people to you know, keep it on their property if they have it as a food source uh, for themselves, for monarch butterflies and other insects, like you mentioned. Because at the end of the day, then it's a really like a win-win situation for everyone, right? Like plant, butterfly, and us humans. So yeah, don't, exactly. Don't just spray it to death. Or, no. Yeah. <laughs> don't spray it at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So kind of veering away from that, uh, I want to just, briefly touch on one of your Substack posts that uh, I thought was really insightful. And that was the, the post on ramps mm. and um, you know, the, the concern with sustainability of ramp picking. I have done an episode on ramps where I did a good amount of research and I found a lot of these studies that say that, you know, ramps are highly uh, are, are planned that you really need to be careful with harvesting because they have a very slow growth cycle and if you, it's very easy to basically pick too many and you know we don't want them to end up on the endangered endangered species list right but i know yeah. uh you have some you have an opinion or even like a researched opinion about this that's quite different from what most people say and maybe even a bit controversial so just want to give you some space to talk about that well one i would say if you want to have um a full listening of like that, that whole opinion yep. more time than I have right here. I actually did an entire podcast with Daniel Vitalis on wildfit podcast, all about leaks Sweet. or ramps. Um, so that that's back there. The podcast is not, not around anymore, but it's still archived really? and you he, can still he listen stopped to it? it. I didn't know. Yeah. That. He stopped. Yeah. He stopped doing wild. Oh shit. Mm -hmm. That's so sad. I yeah. No well, um, I think he's actually moving to do another podcast okay um but either way so that that whole thing is is up there um and then the other thing i would say is that my opinion and um 
and my beliefs, I, I'm not alone in my beliefs. Like I, I'd say that I actually share my beliefs largely with Sam Thayer and I have Sam Thayer to actually thank for guiding me away from being one of the people who was like kind of one leaf per plant kind of pickers. Um, and, and I could see it with my own eyes where I live. It's a very abundant place to pick ramps. Um, and the farms up here sell vast amounts. I'm talking like you can buy tons of them from farms around here every year. And I just started to notice over the years, they're selling the whole plant. And I'm like, okay, so why would a farmer be incentivized to destroy his own crops? Right. You know, and um, then I started to look at like the sustainability issue and started to kind of see it for myself. Oh, oh wow. Um, I have access to a hundred acres of ramps. This is the predominant understory plant here. Seems like the more I pick, the more dense it becomes. <laughs> it seems like it's the opposite of what people say. Um, but that comes with a couple caveats. You have to know how to pick them. You can't just like clear cut an area or, you know, shovel out every single one. Yeah. Um, so basically what we do is we go to an area, a lot of ramps and say you have a clump and there's 40 in a clump, you know, I might take my shovel and dig out a quarter of that. So I might take 10 of those. And I leave the other 30. Now, next year, I come back to that patch and those ramps had a chance to kind of like expand out due to me loosening the soil right there. Mm. And then um, all the remaining ones will get bigger as a result because they have more room to spread out. Okay. So one of the most popular studies about how fragile and unsustainable they are to harvest is one that I think was done in 2004. And if you go on almost any, um, it, like there's a, there's a West Virginia ramp diggers Facebook page, they will actually talk about and cite the fact that that was already at capacity. So the patch that he was that, that, that was the study patch was a ramp patch that was at capacity. So there was no room for them to make any more seeds. Ah, so, so it was a pretty loaded field already. Yeah. It was a flawed study because they weren't, they weren't picking or they weren't showing uh, a lot of like flower recruitment because like when plants, plants, just like humans, like if we're too packed into an area, we actually tend to have less kids. Right. Yeah. Um, so plants kind of do the same thing. There's not a lot of resources. There's not a lot of things to draw from. So what happens is they stop making seeds. Now, well, one, thing that, one thing that I notice in the areas that we pick from is that there are tons of flowers every year, tons of seeds every year. So Yeah, so there's plenty there. And also <clears> like shooting up that flower stalk is extre extremely resource intensive for that plant, right? So it makes sense that they wouldn't just, you know, do it because they can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Huh. That's yeah, interesting. The, the, yeah. And one more thing I would love to say real quickly. I know we don't have forever is that everybody goes by seed. Everybody talks about seed, but seed is not the only way that a ramp is uh, spreading. So they have, they have seed and then they also have division. Um, and plant division is actually probably a more powerful mechanism for spread for them because so 
one plant becomes two plants. Really? I mean, I'm sure. I, yeah. So, I didn't know about that. Yeah. Yeah. So have you left an onion in, in your garden too yeah, long? Yeah. And then next year you come back and how many onions are there? Right. More. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So same all, thing. all alliums do that. Okay. Yeah. I've just never been like co conscious of it, I guess, like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. So they'll they'll probably even do that, and that wouldn't show up in the study either. And in some of these, probably, probably not. Uh, yeah. So uh, basically, the 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 idea is that some of these studies were flawed and might have even been debunked by now, and it's just mm -hmm. not not reached uh, the con like the the you know greater consensus of people foraging and whatnot. I mean, I think that there is an importance, like I teach, uh, like I told you earlier, Southern Michigan and Northern Michigan are different. Um, we have a lot more ramps up here and Southern Michigan does not. So every year that I teach foraging in Southern Michigan, we'll find a couple of ramps and I'll basically tell people like, you should just pick another allium. Like don't pick these here because there's not enough for you to harvest. Okay. So yeah, what you're saying still doesn't mean go out and level a field of ramps, mm -hmm. um, but maybe they're not quite as endangered or as threatened as we thought they were. And yeah, a big part about ramps too, what I've done in the past is the wild tending. Cause I mean, it's almost like you want to do it. Cause there's such like seeing a full ramp field is something really like magical. Like, it's just mm -hmm. awesome. You're like in there in the spring. There's not much else in the trees yet. And it just takes over the forest cover. And it's like you just can't help yourself but to want to preserve it and, and help it out. So, yeah. yeah, for wild tending there, what I used to do is just grab some seeds in the fall or summer and then plant them basically. Mm -hmm. And that's why I still have some in the baggie uh, from Wisconsin. Yeah. So what are like some people who – have a different view than you, they would probably hit on the point that the ramps do have this super long life cycle, or is that maybe not even the case either? That no, that is the case. They have a, they have a long life cycle to seed, but like I said, um, one plant can become several before that first one seeds. Right. Okay. And the life cycle, it's like five, six years, right? Before they would actually produce leaves. And that's why, <clears throat> For people that have no idea, like what a ramp is, that are listening, I hope you do. But if you don't, like it's it's a, it's an onion-like plant, and the uh, the most people will just grab a leaf, like the one leaf thing you were talking about, instead of digging up the whole bulb, because the whole bulb would be like a lethal harvest, right? Um, yeah. So when when would you say the area can sustain like a lethal harvest like that? From your experience, um, for for my, it, I, I really think that you need like multiple acres. Okay. Yeah. So I, if I had like a one acre patch, um, I'd probably still be like a little wary of going crazy, especially if it's public land. Yep. If it's private land, then you know, you do you. Just you don't want to just destroy your whole patch, right? So you're going to try not to. Right, yeah, hundred percent. Even on public, I mean, if, especially if you have one that you can, that's kind of hidden away, like the one we had found. Me and my friend, like, we'd never seen anyone there. Um, <clears throat> so those are still out there, even though it is public, and more people are getting into foraging. <clears throat> yeah, so that's good to know. I'll have to, uh, yeah, I'll link your articles 
in the, the uh, episode description and you even interviewed like other big foragers like Sam Thayer, Arthur Haynes, and forgot who the last one was now. Jim McDonald. Jim McDonald. And they yeah. gave their two cents about this topic. So it's really quite a yeah. comprehensive substack. Thanks for doing that. I think that's very important for the community. Yeah. And I actually, just so everybody knows, I purposely um, invited Arthur Haynes and Jim McDonald to uh if in or do the interview with me because I knew that they don't share my opinion mm -hmm. and I want, I wanted to have something that was a little bit more balanced. Well, that's what we need more of right in today's culture. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Love it. So as we close it out here, um, I just love to, you know, maybe get some more of your most important foraging tips for like a successful and safe foraging uh, trip like what are maybe like your you know your best practices uh best practices um just try to have fun like if you if you aren't having fun then you're going to get burnt out on it and you're not going to want to do it mm -hmm. um so making things more efficient for yourself um maybe even making things easier like uh i have a vitamix at home um vitamix is a wonderful tool. How, uh, how do you use it for foraging? So for for everything, like this year, so just just so you know, like I, I only got a Vitamix like a year and a half ago. And and it's like, wow, I can't believe I waited this long. Yeah. Um but after last year's ricing season, I got I got a bunch of my rice back and I actually just turned a bunch into flour. Oh, yeah. And 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 wild rice flour has been amazing you know i make my kids pancakes a lot and mm -hmm. i just turn like a uh, half the rice flour put half the recipe is rice flour and they're so much more nutty and delicious but it's like it's a grain mill you know um and then pesto right you can make pesto oh yeah a lot of things can make anything but but the point is is that if you're out there and you're doing things and it's difficult for you you're going to be like why am i doing this yeah <laughs> You know, so learning all the tools that you can have, like if you're picking berries, you're really going to want a berry basket that kind of hangs around your neck so you can pick with both hands and then it expedites the process. Yeah. Have you ever used a berry rake? What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> um, we pick wild blueberries with with berry rakes. Okay. Yeah. And I, I love them. You know, I did 17 gallons of blueberries last year. Wow. Yeah. And um me, me, and I got three kids, and uh, me and my 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 son. He's the oldest. He's thirteen. Um, he picks them with the berry rake, and then my girlfriend Madeline. She also picks them, and then my younger two are kind of they're a little young. They're not really that interested in picking just yet. Um, but yeah, we got a lot of blueberries. That's a really good harvest. But yeah, you're right. Having the right tools. What are like some of your most your favorite tools to have for foraging? Well, the, the blueberry rake, which I also use for autumn olives. Mm. Um, and then... Uh, Are those the Russian olives? I've never picked... No, no. no. Okay. Russian olive is a different species. So autumn olive is red. Russian olive is like a little bit gray. Okay. Um, so tools, I like to have baskets of varying sizes. I really like berry baskets a lot because... So say you're any berry that is above your head, you can kind of hang it around your neck. So for any service berry or June berry, we like to pick with berry baskets. Um, cherries. Yep. All of them. Yep. Uh, 
I really like the blueberry rakes. I really like to keep keep a pair of uh, pruners yep. on me or in my car, and just the hand snips because. So say you're picking through a black raspberry patch or a raspberry patch, right? And like you can't get to the middle, but you can see a ton of berries. We will actually carry those in our back pocket and snip pathways through them. Yep. Yeah. And you're not hurting the plant, like especially not raspberries and whatnot. No. I mean, no. they're gonna could just come straight back. Yeah. Yep. So uh, just just that sort of thing, and then, like the and then, digging stick, maybe that's a good one to have. Uh, <laughs> I'm not really into a digging sticks, but I do have like a mini shovel. Yeah. Like a trowel. Yeah. 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 But, uh, I have, I have used sticks. Like if all you have is a knife and you need to make yourself a digging stick, you can always make one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can just make a, get a hazelnut stick or any straight stick basically. Yeah. I actually wrote up a, a gear list post for foraging cause I, was looking for some and I couldn't really find many out there. So that's something people listening can check out. And I got most of the tool, uh, every tool you just mentioned and what I just mentioned in there, the pruners are big for me too. I like to keep those mm -hmm. around, especially if I'm like into thorns. Uh, mm -hmm. That's huge. Yeah. That's cool that you say that. Cause I, I don't know many other foragers that do that. The pruners. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it's like, I don't know. I did a lot of landscaping and stuff. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that's where we both get it from. Cause you do that too. Yeah. yeah. So what but, other um, uh, best practice wise, what else you got for us? Um, just always keep an eye on sustainability, yep. you know, like that's a, that's a good one. So obviously like one of the first things that I'll tell people in my classes is like, you should always aim your harvest for invasives first. Right. And then um, abundant natives next, you know, mm -hmm. and then, and then if you're learning like natives that are a little bit more fragile, then you probably want to, um, figure out how you can plant them at your house rather than going out to the wild and harvesting them. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good idea. Like I never understand why people put these like crazy ornamentals in their garden when they could just put these native plants there that are, they can eat, they don't have to yeah. do much to them and they still look pretty, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, um, my garden is a riot. It's like, <laughs> it's like, it's like insanity because we have so many native plants mixed with some of the non-native things too so um it, it's like chaos yeah hey but yeah. that's what some of those natives probably need to to thrive too yeah i yeah. think it's pretty cool but um that that's just basically what i would say like you know plant things at your house you can grow them you can wild tend them um learn learn your land Learn to like think of yourself as your land, not mm. not think of yourself as being like, I'm this alien just looking upon yeah. this land. Don't just be an observer, be a participant and really yes. like, and not just take, but also like establish. Yeah. Yep. Give yeah, back. That. Yep. Love that. Yeah, those are some really big points. I think I think for me the biggest a big one is just watching things throughout the season even before mm -hmm. I maybe, maybe even harvest the first thing, I'll just come yeah. back and just see how does this develop? Like, what does it turn into? Yeah. Yeah. Last year I studied a single carrot family member for an entire year. <laughs> Which one was it? It was a uh, Javan water celery. Okay. It's, it's a um, non-native species, but um, I simultaneously last year founded three separate gardening clients houses. Wow. And, um, 
I watched it through the entire season, and then I just ate it this year and brought a bunch to the Foragers Gathering. Nice. Yeah. yeah, that's how you have to do it. I mean, that's how we don't, sadly, I mean, the best thing is to have mentors, like, mm -hmm. you know, go take a forging class with you and whatnot, but not everyone ha can do that. So if you don't have these mentors, one, start finding them and build a circle of your own, like a little friend group that you can bounce ideas off and teach each other. But uh, yeah, also just really, if it's just you, really take your time and 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 watch things uh, it's not always a, a quick thing foraging you gotta if you want to be really successful and really learn your land it's gonna take a while oh yeah 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 you can't be in a hurry right <laughs> <laughs> yeah cool well man this has been a super super insightful conversation i've had a ton of fun so far talking to you and now we're coming to the end here i know it's pretty late for you already as well have you mm -hmm. get on with your day but uh, is there anything you feel like we didn't cover that you want to get out there? I would love actually to, uh, I've been having a lot of trouble getting the message out on Instagram and Facebook because they don't want me to plug it. But um, I have a YouTube channel called Foraging the 50 and I'm doing an episode in every single state. Um, these are like, uh, I, I'm fortunate. My brother, Lucas Christensen, he is my half brother. He's like... Um, a professional videographer. So four years ago, we decided to team up and work on a project and um, we're filming full length, like TV show quality episodes and putting them on um, YouTube. Fuck yeah. but, but unfortunately I can't uh, talk about them on Instagram that or Facebook. That is so strange. Like you think like foraging, they wouldn't crack down on. Like I get, for me, I talk a lot about eating meat and stuff and promote that. Yeah. And I get that. Like, that's not quite that ideology probably, but foraging, you know? Well, it's not, it's not that it's because I'm mentioning YouTube. Mm. So they don't want, they don't want to let anybody um, off of their platforms. Right. So Mark. whenever I, so I can't put a link to it without them like putting me lower in the algorithm. Yeah. So I'm just saying it here. If you got a chance, go check out my page, Foraging the 50. Please watch the videos and subscribe if you can. Um, we're really trying to put quality episodes out there and have good content. And um, the focus of the show is on other foragers around the country. So it's not it's not me. Like I'm the host and I'm going to experience what it's like to forage in a different state with somebody who is a professional there. Cool. Love yeah. it. When, well, if you come out to Montana, you don't have anyone yet. I just met a guy out here, Jacob. He's super nice. Uh, I haven't foraged much with him yet, but he's been doing it around this area for like eight years now. So he, oh, cool. he knows his stuff. Um, he's quite a, yeah, he, he does foraging walks too. And so if you need someone in Montana, let me know. But I'm sure there's. I do. I, I need so I've done uh, three. We filmed in three states so far. So um, I need a 47 to go. Cool. <laughs> I need all the foragers I can find. Yeah. Well, Maybe we can do a collab there. That'd be fun. Yeah. Bring us all together. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Maybe have you tried like doing a link in bio thing? Mm, no. You should do that. So yeah. what I would do, because like, I mean, I, I'm i in marketing and like I learn about the algorithms and stuff. So it makes sense. Yeah, they don't. They definitely don't. They don't really even like it when you say link in bio. But um, you could make like a, a link tree. Uh, if you've never heard of that, look at my profile. It's like free to set up. And I would just put a link to your uh, YouTube in there and then maybe 
just be like, hey, look at my link in bio, you know, then you're not using the word YouTube. That might, maybe <clears throat> that'll help a bit. But that sucks. Yeah. That sucks because that sounds like a really cool project you're working on and definitely people should check out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But other than that, um, please uh, look me up on Instagram and Facebook. My name's just Clay Bowers. Yeah. It's real easy. Easy. Yeah. And I will link, like I said, to everything we talked about in the podcast episode description and yeah hopefully uh people will go out and look at your stuff highly recommended i've learned a lot from your posts and whatnot so yeah keep it up keep it up you're definitely a good to have in the community i think and <laughs> you've you know it's not not everyone ha has that long of a foraging history and is able to to educate and, and communicate it in a way that resonates with people and And is is easy easy to understand, right? So yeah, yeah, gotta gotta keep everyone out out there and keep producing content. Don't get discouraged. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I definitely I'm trying. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, but I I gotta get more subscribers on that channel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'll link it in the send me all the links over, and then I'll I can put them all in there. Sweet, cool. All right, man. Well, I'd love to maybe do this again sometime. This is super fun. We can Absolutely. talk about some other topics. Um, and yeah, this should be up in like uh, a few weeks here. Great. Cool. That sounds good. All right. All right. Okay. We've come to the end of today's Year of Plenty podcast episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share this episode with your friends. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And make sure to send me a screenshot to my Instagram, which is at Wheeland or to my email address, which is theyearofplenty at gmail.com. In return for leaving a review, I will send you my ebook with some of my favorite food preservation recipes. If you get value from the show and want to see it grow, please consider leaving a donation on either my Patreon or my Buy Me a Coffee page. Links to both of those will be in the podcast episode description. And finally, join my free newsletter and I will send you monthly emails with more content that is complimentary to the podcast straight to your inbox. You can sign up for the newsletter at www.theyearofplenty.com slash newsletter. And like I said, links to everything will be in the podcast episode description, easy for you to find. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, my friends, let's keep exploring real food together.